to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would breathe over this time. We confess that we believe your scriptures to be infallible and errant, that this thing is God-breathed. Lord, help me to communicate it with truthfulness, with clarity. And Lord, we just lay our hearts bare before you this morning, and we say, mold us. We're clay in your hands. Mold us. We say, kingdom come. Anything you need to cut out of us, anything you need to install into us, this morning is yours. This morning belongs to you, Holy Spirit. This morning belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. This this week as I studied, I was reminded of Frank Bartleman, um, who was the um, one of the leaders in the Azusa Street movement. He was a family, his family, they served as missionaries, and they ended up landing in the Los Angeles area right at the turn of the 20th century, right in the early 1900s. And he kind of did odd jobs for work. He said, and he would say that he loved to work. He was, any of you guys like that? You just like to get your hands dirty. You like the progress. And he did odd jobs for years. And he would go minister at night, work in the day and minister at night. And one day he said he felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to him and told him, no, you're going to, you need to do ministry full time and you need to trust me for money. And that was hard for him. That wasn't an easy, I'm just going to, you know, flip it thing. That was hard for him. And so he did. He started, um, Trusting God for money, but they didn't have any steady income, and they lived poor. Many nights they were praying for dinner to come, and but God always provided. And he threw himself into ministry, this kind of hard work ethic. He seriously would spend entire nights in prayer, would go over to visit somebody and would get to talking, and then they'd get to praying, and he'd start walking home when the sun came up, like just prayed all the way through the night. He would, when they were having meetings, you know, they'd have little, you remember in those days they'd do tent meetings, little revival meetings. He would walk neighborhoods, inviting people, praying for people. Like he just really worked hard. He said in one of his, in, in his diary, he actually said, I'd rather wear out than rust out and rather starve for God if need be than fatten for the devil. And I think there's, I think there's beauty in that heart posture. I'd rather wear out than rust out, rather starve for God if it need be than be fattened for the devil. And his daughter, Esther, struggled with sickness, some kind of constant illness. And the Lord took her at 12, at age 12, she passed. And Frank Barman said that he prayed for her nonstop. And he really felt like his prayers are what got her as far as she did. But he got to in a place in his heart where he said, she's suffering. And he just kind of said, Lord, let your will be done. And the Lord took his 12-year-old Esther, and he loved her. He was, you can look up little chunks from his diary. He was totally heartbroken. He had no money to bury her, um, this girl that he was crazy about. If you've got little girls, you know what I'm saying. He had no money to bury this little girl that he was crazy about. And a friend came and bought a little plot across town. Um, and she was buried in a, um, in a plot with where poor immigrants were buried. So immigrants who kind of came up into California, this is a plot where they all buried their kids because it was cheap. And Bartleman would say in his diary, she was buried a missionary. She lived a missionary. Then he says in his journal, beside that little coffin with heart bleeding, I pledged my life anew for God's service. Again, he said the death, all in his writing, the death of his daughter totally 
broke his heart. But, but something that happened in that brokenness was that God caused him to begin to hunger for the fullness of the kingdom any more, even more than before. And there's something there that we miss sometimes. We all despise the desert. Nobody likes the desert, but sometimes in the desert, God's teaching you to really thirst, to really hunger. Nobody likes to live dry, but in the dryness, sometimes God causes you to be totally and utterly aware of how desperate you really are for God's presence. And it awoke in him this kind of spirit of intercession, this real cry of prayer. He's known for his just incredibly robust prayer life. And he started to cry for more of God of God on earth. And again, he says somewhere in his journal, the spirit of prophecy came upon me strongly. Also, I seemed to receive a definite gift of faith for revival. We were evidently in the beginning of wonderful days to come. And I prophesied continually of a mighty outpouring. And again, suffering does this. It makes you aware of our need for God's presence. And as he settled himself into this place of prayer where he was really just soaking in the presence of the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to speak, asking the Holy Spirit to move. He was going to meetings, praying for people. He felt God begin to speak into his heart prophetically that God was going to move in a powerful way in L.A. and in his city. And we know that what Frank Bartleman heard in his spirit was true because you're sitting in the in the after mass of it this morning. Our entire movement has its grounding in this Azusa Street removal uh, uh, movement. And it causes him to reflect on the fact that this disease that riddled his daughter's bones was not from heaven and will not exist in the kingdom to come. And again, something's birthed out of his brokenness, like this deep burn this deep passion in his gut and he's longing ultimately for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God the day when Jesus sets all things right when no one else's little girl will suffer in sickness when that disease will be eradicated from he's longing ultimately for that but he's also longing for an in-between he's also saying God give us more of you today I'm aching for the fullness of the kingdom but give us more of the kingdom of God today And the prophetic utterance begins to stir and intercession begins to take place. He fasts. He's known for this incredible fasting life. I've told you before that his wife said at one point that she was worried he was going to starve to death because he just totally committed himself to fasting and prayer. And in in, in 1904, he started to uh, visit this prayer uh, meeting that was happening in Azusa Street where African Americans were praying with white folks. And that's a big deal in 1904. And I just subtly lay that out before you. Anytime you see a spirit of racism begin to break off, you can be sure that God's moving. When people of all colors can come together and worship, you can be sure that the Holy Ghost is beginning to speak. But Galatians tells us that we are one new man in Christ Jesus. And our skin color does not affect our standing in Christ. And the gospel is not a white man's gospel. It's not an Asian man's gospel. It's not a Mexican or black man's gospel. The gospel is Jesus's gospel to all people of all colors, to all nations, to every tribe and tongue. Revelation tells us on the last day that the praise will be filled with every tribe and tongue. And you catch a glimpse of heaven on earth when people of multiple backgrounds come together to worship. 
And it was in Azusa Street where people began to speak in tongues. That was really the first... People spoke in tongues in the States before that. This is the first movement where like tongues starts to happen and prophecy starts to happen and sick people start to get healed and we start seeing these crazy miracles happen. It just kind of bursts forth and spills over into our nation. But in the life of Frank Bartleman, we see the concepts of suffering and kingdom, not conflicting, but birthing something in him. We see the concepts of prayer and prophecy, not conflicting, but being carried within his heart together in, in one man. Audrey, do you have that picture of, of Jeremiah that I wanted to show? This is um, Michelangelo's depiction of Jeremiah in the Sistine Chapel. And remember, he's um, here, he's mourning the, in Michelangelo's depiction, he's mourning the fall of Jerusalem, like totally broken, like filled with despair. Um, but again, I just wanted to highlight that, remember, Jeremiah is, is a contemporary of Daniel. They, Jeremiah prophesies what Daniel will experience. Daniel lives in the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophetic declaration. But in Jeremiah, you see brokenness. You see suffering, you see hunger, you see tears, and you see real prayer. And that's what we see in the life of Daniel that I want to try to catch for you today. As we wind down in the first six chapters of of Daniel, I want to draw your attention to Daniel's heart posture. In Daniel, we find extreme perseverance through suffering. In Daniel, we find extreme hunger in the wilderness. In Daniel, we find prophetic declaration. And this morning in Daniel, we'll find an aggressive commitment to a life of prayer. And all of those things kind of work together and birth something in him, a posture, a heart posture that I don't have one word to articulate well, but it holds all of those things together and it operates in like this kind of succinct mode of prophetic declaration, of hunger, of prayer, of believing for God to release more of his kingdom in the earth. And what we see in the life of Frank Bartleman, we see in the life of Daniel, and it's my heart cry that we begin to see and always see in the life of our church, that we see in our church this perseverance through suffering, that we see in our church this real hunger for the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God, but we also always want to be a people who are hungering and thirsting of a move of God today for revival and awakening in our midst today. So let's read this morning, we're going to read Daniel chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. Remember, Darius received the kingdom last week at the conclusion of Daniel chapter 5, Darius the Mede. This is what it said. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. 
these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and its injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. uh, Scholars say that there's a kind of a second room where you would open the windows and kind of catch a breeze too because it's hot, you know. Daniel got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. Three times a day. And if you've been with us as we studied the book of Daniel. We see here again Daniel becomes the object of envy. The other leaders begin to plot. Did you hear him say that Daniel was one of the three leaders over all the leaders? And then Darius saw within Daniel this spirit of excellence and wisdom. So Darius decided that he was going to put Daniel above all the leaders. Scholars say this is within the first couple years of Darius's leadership. So Darius received Babylon. Now he's trying to organize himself governmentally. He's trying to create structures that function. And so Daniel is quickly rising up the ladder, and Darius is very fond of Daniel. So they begin to plot. They begin to plan. They begin to, you know, gather and gossip and talk about how they can take Daniel down. And certainly this plot is birthed from the demonic realm, and it's intended to rob Daniel of his influence. The last thing that the enemy wants is any man or woman of God to have influence in the earth. He'll do everything he can to rob you of your influence. And Daniel's rising quickly to a place of leadership, chief leader. We've seen these men doing things like this before. They're still jealous. They're still harboring envy. And envy makes you do crazy things. It makes you be a little ridiculous. This morning, I want to encourage you, go ahead and lay your jealousy down. Lay your envy down. Lay your bitterness down. Just refuse to carry it. It makes you ridiculous. So they search Daniel out. They have this conversation about Daniel's life, and they kind of 
talk about all of Daniel's ins and outs. And they're searching for a lapse of integrity, a weakness to expose. You know, in boxing, when you see a cut, you work that weakness. They're doing the same thing. We do that in our political climate today when two men are running against each other. If they could find a story about a moral failure of their opponent, they let that thing fly, right? They try to discourage their promotion. And so they search Daniel out. They can't find anything on him. They find nothing on him. It's worth taking the time this morning to ponder. If you were in Daniel's shoes this morning, and your enemy decided to search out all of your life, to examine your finances, to examine your internet history, to, you know, bug your house and try to catch you in conversations that would condemn you. If they watched you and followed you, what would they find? You consider that this morning. If you were in Daniel's shoes and you had an enemy who was carefully and strategically examining all the ins and outs of your life because they wanted to stop you from being fruitful, what would they find? You need to be honest with your heart this morning. What would they find? Do you live with integrity or do you live with things hidden in the secret place? Because the truth of the matter is is that you do have an enemy this morning. And it may be that God is calling you to influence this community and to advance his kingdom and power in this community. But God can't use you because the devil uses you every day. And if God would exalt you, the enemy would just expose your weakness and you would be more good for hell than you are for heaven because you walk around with hidden sin in your heart. Because people could catch you and easily trap you up. It's easy to live in hidden sin when nobody's watching you. But when people start to watch you, when God starts to anoint you and and exalt you, people start to watch and the way that you live matters. It absolutely matters. You hear that this morning, man. And all sin is sin. I'm, I'm with you. Sin is sin is sin and sin will be judged. And sin is all before the eyes of God guilty and before the eyes of God it's evil but I want you to hear me say this morning that while all sin is sin is sin and while Jesus tells us you take the log out of your own eye before you start trying to mess with somebody else's meaning you be concerned first and foremost with your own personal integrity but I want you to hear, hear me say this morning while sin is sin is sin Caleb struggling for a season with anxiety. You guys know this is a new season for me. If you didn't recognize the fact yet, I'm a little young. Okay, I'm still learning and growing. If you ain't figured that out yet, there it is. Um, so in this new season, I'm struggling with fear. I'm str- I was struggling with insecurity and anxiety. And I feel like I've really, I told you last week, I feel like I've come out of that. But nobody in the church is throwing stones at me for struggling with insecurity. The people in the church are praying for me, maybe rebuking me from time to time. I got a couple of rebukes in that, and that's okay. But for the most part, you've loved me and encouraged me and had grace for me as I, as I struggle with sin. It's sin in my heart to struggle with fear. But you've, you've stood by me. You've encouraged me. But if I, if you found out today that I was having an adulterous relationship, I was cheating on my wife, you would completely, the elders would remove me from my place of leadership, and they should. And it would be right. 
All my sin is just is sin. It's 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 evil before God's eyes, and I need to repent of it. It is, but but sin carries different consequences, and not every sin comes from the same place of heart. So don't allow that sin is sin is sin to be justification for you to continue in your pornography addiction because you know that somebody else struggles with with gossip. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? You can't justify your sin by saying, "Oh, everybody's a sinner, and all sin is equal." Th- those things are true, but it's not a logical conclusion to continue in your adulterous relationship, to continue in your blatant, open rebelliousness against God. It's, it's not logical to say because someone else is struggling with fear that you can go ahead and have sex with whoever you want. Those, those things don't match up. All sin is sin and will be judged, but sins have different consequences, come from different heart postures. And here, I know this is controversial, but I want you to hear me this morning. Hear Jesus saying to places like Tyre and Sidon, woe to you on the last day, you will be judged worse even than Sodom and Gomorrah. What is he saying? He's saying that people receive different judgment and different sins. They, they reap different consequences. And so I'm saying to you this morning, you will always struggle with sin and we will always wrestle. And there are things in my heart this morning that I need to pray through, that I need to repent of. And you need to feel like you have permission to come to me every now and then and say, Caleb, I think this is an area of brokenness in your life. And that's okay. You are allowed to have brokenness. But to live in open, blatant rebellion is to rob you of your destiny. It's to rob you of your purpose. God cannot use you like God intends to use you if you are living with skeletons in your closet this morning. And let me tell you, if there are skeletons in your closet, man, come confess it. I have no stones. If you ain't aware of that yet, you should know. Caleb ain't got no stones to throw. I got nothing to hurl your way. And our elders have no stones to throw. We're not people of condemnation. If you need help getting out of sin, you call the office and ask to speak to me. And I will do everything in my power to help you get out of sin without throwing stones at you. But you've got to get out of sin to really be used. You guys hear what I'm saying? You've got to get out of sin. Otherwise, the enemy is just waiting to expose you and to rob you of your voice. The enemy wants nothing more than to entangle me in some kind of hidden sin and then rob me of my voice. I had notes somewhere. I had to find where that was. But they find nothing on Daniel. They find no dirt on him. Sure, Daniel's made mistakes. Sure, Daniel's spoken to people with the wrong tone of voice. But, but nothing in Daniel's life can they grab and expose him for. So they're forced to resort to manipulation. And manipulation is demonic's last shot at pulling down a man or woman of God. Manipulation is hell's last chance of wrangling down a person of integrity. And I want to just lobby this out here for you this morning. I want you to be careful of heresy hunters. I want you to be careful of people who are always calling false shepherd. Because every pastor in our nation has problems. And there's no pastor in our nation who's a perfect teacher of the scriptures. We're all struggling. You need to understand what orthodox doctrine is 
and what, what peripheral doctrine is. And from time to time, every man or woman of God gets tangled up in their peripheral doctrine. Because sometimes it's the strategy of the enemy to find a place of shortcoming in a man or woman of integrity's life. And then to hold it up on the internet and say, everyone throw stones at them because they're a heretic. And our culture loves to throw stones. You be careful because what you may have is a man or woman of integrity who the enemy can't expose. But he will try to manipulate people against them. We don't partner with a spirit of manipulation. I'm not saying that we should never speak up and say, hey, this person's out of line. I'm not saying that any sin in a pastor's life is okay. Don't hear me say that. I'm just saying be slow. Be, be slow to cast judgment. That's a biblical principle that we're going to keep trying to learn. In verse 7, they say to Darius, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the government governors, we're all agreed about this matter. Well, it's not true. Daniel's not agreed about this matter. Daniel is set to become the, the, the absolute head. His voice is the most important voice to Darius at this point. Darius values Daniel's opinion over everyone else's opinion. And Daniel is not agreed to this proposition. So they manipulate They lie to Darius. They deceive Darius. When they say to Darius, everyone's agreed on this, Darius assumes that Daniel is on board. And we need to use wisdom in how we respond to deception. And I'm sure as I've prayed, I'm sure that Daniel crawled into his place of prayer this day. I'm sure part of what he was praying about was that God would justify him before leadership. I'm sure part of his prayer, his intercessory prayer this morning was a little bit of spiritual warfare saying to the enemy, no, from Isaiah, no weapon formed against me should prosper. And this is a strategy of hell to condemn me. And I'm I'm asking and pleading with heaven to not allow this strategy to advance. And you need to understand that manipulation, that demonic thing, manipulation, it's brought low in the place of prayer. And sometimes trying to justify yourself is only making the thing look messier. This is a weird little thing about manipulation. Daniel says, I'm going to take this to my place of prayer and I'm going to wrangle this demonic strategy down. And I'm going to petition heaven that this thing come off my life. So now under this decree Daniel can do one of two things he can turn his back on prayer for just a month he just has to not pray for a month or he can obey the law of land he can forfeit his role as an intercessor just for a month or he can continue to pray and face the lion's den And I'm sure that some younger man would have reasoned, all I have to do is not pray for a month and I can maintain my position of leadership and in my position of leadership, I can do more good for the people of God than I can do if I'm stuck in the bottom of a lion's den. I'm sure some younger man would have just reasoned that thing away and say, no, I'll just just hang out by myself for a month and that way I don't lose my influence and that way I can still help people. But Daniel is an older seasoned man of God at this point and he ain't fallen for that. He's been around this track a time or two. And the scriptures imply that Daniel doesn't even think about this. That Daniel goes straight, climbs straight up to the second floor of his room and begins to pray. This dilemma is no dilemma at all. Daniel's earthly occupation is important and he's a man of integrity and he works with work ethic. 
But his kingdom occupation is ordained from the throne room of heaven. Before he is a politician, he's a prophet. Before he's a national leader, he's an intercessor. Before he honors this king, he must honor God. And as kingdom citizens this morning, you learned that lesson. Before anything else, I am a citizen of heaven. Commission, I'm an ambassador for Christ. That means that I'm an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven on earth. The idea of apostle is a sent one, someone who's sent from another region in order to establish the reign of that region in the current region. I live in earth, but I'm a citizen of heaven. It's my first and foremost commission to bring a glorious praise to the God of heaven, to release in the nations worship, real heartfelt worship, and to see People turn and repent and come to know Jesus. And I can't do that abandoning prayer. I will not abandon my position as ambassador of Christ. I won't choose my occupation over that. I choose my occupation in the heavenlies first. Some commentators point out that this chapter of Daniel feels a lot like Daniel chapter 3. Where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to the fiery furnace because they won't worship the false god. The distinction here is that, that, that Daniel goes to the lion's den because he won't quit worshiping the true God. Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego teach us that we never bow our knee to false gods. And Daniel teaches us in chapter 6 that we never quit bowing our knee to the Lord of heaven. It's not enough to simply resolve to not bow the knee to false gods. We are resolved to bow our knee to God daily, systematically, to bring him pure and unadulterated worship, to keep the fire on the altar burning day in and day out, to let the throne room of heaven be filled with the aroma of our praise 24-7. Daniel can't live without a season, can't live a season without stirring the embers of his heart with passion and prayer. He aches for God. He hungers. He really thirsts. So it's our resolve as a church to never bow our knee to any false God, but to like Daniel, daily bow our knee to the God of Israel. Daniel lives with daily systematic devotion. You hear me this morning. Daily systematic devotion. He refuses to bring half-hearted sacrifice. He won't live a month of stale devotion. Daily, morning, evening, and noon, he gets up to pray. It's daily, systematic. And lastly here, or another point, not lastly, y'all don't get excited. We got another minute here, so y'all better give me my time. We find him with this rhythm of prayer. We find him with this certain prayer model that we don't see everywhere in scripture. He's praying morning, noon, and evening. He's also opening his window and praying towards Jerusalem. And that prayer towards Jerusalem says a couple of things to us that we'll touch here in a second. But first, there's no scriptural command to pray morning, noon, and evening. We don't find that in scripture anywhere. But we do find Psalm 55 verse 17 saying that evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. This is David say, this is the way I pray. I pray at morning, at evening, and at noon. I moan my complaints to God and God hears me. And so it seems that Daniel grabbed this concept from David and he begins to practice this kind of prayer life morning evening and noon he presents his request to the throne 
The text is really clear that Daniel didn't head home and pray in an open window despite the king and his decree. He headed home, went to a second level room and prayed because that's what he did every day. And he's an old man and we all know old men like their routines. I'm looking at you. He's a man of routine, but he's also a man of spontaneous moments, spontaneous encounters. He's a man of systematic prayer life. But we know from Scripture, specifically Daniel chapter 9, 10, we see Daniel fasting for weeks. We see Daniel um, having these heavenly encounters. We see Daniel falling to his face as the glory of God appears before him. Gabriel himself comes and brings Daniel revelations. Daniel is a man of systematic prayer, and he's also a man of spontaneous encounter. He prays three times a day at the same time, but if God begins to move, he'll stop and pray. And he'll he'll set on his schedule, I'm going to fast for a couple weeks because I'm believing for breakthrough. And that's what what God's calling us to is systematic daily devotion and spontaneous burst forth praise. People who pray just when they feel like praying. And that's what Frank Bartleman said. He couldn't stand churches that had systematic prayer meetings. Although I don't think there's anything wrong with systematic prayer meetings. I think we should have them. But Frank Bartleman loved to walk into a church and then say, I think God's asking us to pray and just pray through the night. I got kids and those things got to be put to bed. I can't do that all the time. But he also prays towards Jerusalem. Many scholars believe all the captives did. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 35-36, to where Solomon, Solomon's dedicating the temple, and he says this, When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel. Daniel is living in the fulfillment of what Solomon said here. He's living in the days of no rain. He's living in the days of judgment. He's living in the days where the people of Israel have been driven away from the temple. And so response to this, Daniel every day climbs to the second story of his house. He opens his window and he prays towards the temple of Jerusalem, which ain't there anymore. The temple's been totally destroyed. But in his prayer, do you, do you feel what he's doing? First, there's a repentance to that. First, there is a, there's this principle in scripture that, and Micah presented it so beautifully this morning, that as the people of God repent, God comes running back towards us. And Daniel believes that if the people of God would turn themselves towards Jerusalem and pray, then God would restore his people. And that principle remains for us today. We're in a season of a bit of confusion. We're in a season where things feel a little like upheaval in our nation. We're not persecuted like Daniel was persecuted, certainly not. But we are, we're getting to a place where people don't like us so much. And, and, and through that, what we need to do is search our own hearts, begin to allow God to expose in our hearts our sin, and begin to pray in repentance. We need to repent and ask God to move again. In my connect group this week, that's one thing we did. We laid hands on each other and prayed, God, reveal to us what's sinful in our hearts. Lead us to repentance. You need community. You need people around you helping you pray those things. This is an un- unmovable principle. If my people who are called according to my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them and heal their land, the scripture says. 
I think our current predicament, we need to corporately repent. And again, this is a principle that doesn't make sense in Western culture. We don't like the idea of repenting for sin that we didn't do because we're very much about individuality. Um, and that's okay, but that's not necessarily a scriptural implication. The scripture certainly is about individuality. Every one of us has to make a decision whether we're going to serve Jesus or not. That's an individual decision. But scripturally, God oftentimes deals with entire people groups. And, and there, there's a scriptural principle of a man or woman of God can stand in the gap and can stand in place for their people group and repent. So in Daniel chapter 9, again, we find him repenting of sins that he never, that he never did. He was repenting of things that his fathers did. Not stuff that he did. And God honors that repentance and God moves and acts. It's the same thing for us. I have not, like, well, I won't get into sin. There's a lot of national sins that we're, that we're doing right now. Again, no stones to anybody in the room who's had an abortion. There's grace for you. We will pray for you. I've got no stone to throw at you. But, but nationally, it is wicked before God that we are shedding the blood of innocent children. And the church needs to rise up and stand in the gap. And I have to repent for the sin of abortion, even though I've never had an abortion because I'm a male, but, but also because we never had an abortion. That was a joke that was not placed in a good spot. Hallelujah. Um, I don't have a womb. Um, but do you guys hear what I'm saying? As a church, we need to allow God to search our hearts. We need to repent of our junk. Because let me tell you why. The, the religious spirit is just not going to cut it for us. Oftentimes our churches are filled with religious spirit and not the spirit of the Holy Ghost. We need the Holy Spirit. We don't need the counterfeit. And so that means you need to repent of your junk because I'm praying for a day when we get the fullness of God's presence. I'm not content with religious spirit junk. I'm not content with it. We're after a real body that loves, cares for one another, that, that sees beyond people's sin and sees their future fulfillment and calling. And that instead of throwing stones at somebody, kicks them in the butt and says, get going. There's work for you to do. We're after not a spirit of condemnation, but a spirit of grace. We're after not a spirit of judgment, but a spirit of power. I don't want to condemn anyone who's struggling with sickness. I want them to walk out of here whole in Jesus' name. So we find Daniel, this is where I kind of want to wrap up, and I know this feels a little bit like this, but I'm trying to get us to a single point. What we find Daniel doing is repenting, praying, positioning himself to come in alignment with the prophetic word that God will establish his his temple in Jerusalem again. He is positioning himself through prayer. He's aligning himself with the prophetic word that God will set the son of David on the throne of Jerusalem and he will set all things right. Daniel's life comes into alignment with the prophetic word through the spirit of intercession. He's declared through Nebuchadnezzar's dream that the the kingdom of, of Assyria would be overthrown to the Medes and the Persians, and it did. He declared through Jeremiah that Jerusalem would be desolate for 70 years, and it was, most scholars believe, that at this time, the first of the captives have already begun to return to Jerusalem. So as Daniel's encountering this kind of friction, there are people already making their way back to Jerusalem. It's come to pass, but Daniel's also driven by a 
full view of God's redemptive narrative. There are things God's going to do now. There are things God's going to do tomorrow. And there are things that God is ultimately going to accomplish. And there are prophetic words for all of those things. There's a prophetic word that the people will be in Babylon for 70 years. There's prophetic words that there will be a second temple. There's prophetic words to come that Messiah will come to that second temple. Um, so there's prophetic about what's coming next. And then there's this prophetic declaration especially from Isaiah, that God will set all things right. The, the, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, that God will eradicate the earth. And Daniel knows the prophetic declarations, and he positions his life to come into alignment with the prophetic declarations. And it's in this life that we find this link between the prophetic declaration, hope, Suffering in the ministry of prayer. Suffering in that Daniel is living in brokenness. But the prophetic declaration is that there's going to be a relief. That God's going to move again. There's hope in his heart. Why is he still praying? Because he's got hope. Oftentimes you quit praying because you lose hope. And what would fix your hope problem is, first of all, to lose yourself in the gospel and the shed blood of Jesus. That'll fix about everything you got. But will also fix your hope problem is to begin to study the prophetic, to study what God has declared in Scripture about the last days. When you begin to realize that the victory is won and God has spoken. And when God speaks, it is sure. And God has said with his sure voice that what we're living in today is not it. That there's something else coming. That there is a new heaven and a new earth being prepared for us. And Jesus says, I leave you today. But what I'm doing is I'm going to prepare a place for you. That Jesus, part of Jesus' role in heaven today is preparing the, our final place of rest. And what will fix your hope problem is to understand the prophetic and the prophetic births hope and the hope births intercession and the spirit of holiness and and the suffering that we experience we persevere through because we understand that there's more to come again not that i have time to fully articulate this point but the idea of apocalyptic prophecy prophecy about the end times it always comes in scripture to people of suffering daniel is prophesying about the fall of assyria and the fall of the medes and persians and the day when the rock that is cut not with human hands crushes these powers and fills the earth with the kingdom of god he's prophesying that to people who have been dragged out of their homeland and subjected to bondage and when when john gives us the book of revelation he gives us to it on the island of patmos completely suffering he is suffering and he's giving it to churches who are, are losing their heads for the gospel and what's he saying to those churches He's saying, you persevere because there is a last day that is on its way. And as you struggle and as you suffer and as you go through hardships in life, you need to grab hold of the, of the big prophetic picture. The prophetic does that. It gives us direction to pray into, vision to pursue. We need to hold fast to the inerrant declaration of Scripture that there's a coming day that the kingdom of God will be fully manifested. But we also find in the New Testament church, this is controversial, but I'm just going to show it to you from Scripture. In the New Testament church, we find the gift of prophecy operating in a way that postures the church to respond to what God's doing in the earth. So we see Agabus prophesying that there is going to be a coming famine 
hard famine. And what the church does in response to Agabus's prophecy is they put their money together and their goods together and they send their stuff to relieve people who are suffering. So there's a prophetic word that's, that doesn't really have anything to do with scripture. It doesn't really change anything for us. Prophetic word, there will be a famine. The response from the church, let's save all our money and our goods and let's relieve somebody else's suffering because that's what Christians do. Paul says that he kept trying to go into Asia, that he wanted to minister into Asia, but but the Holy Spirit stopped him, and he didn't understand why. Then one night he has a dream of a man fully dressed in Macedonian garb, and the man is hollering out to Paul and saying, come over. And Paul responds to that prophetic dream. He aligns his life with the prophecy, and he heads to Macedonia, and God shows up and shows off, because what God said to Paul is, I'm getting ready to do this now, over here, prophetically line yourself with it. And this is a bit controversial, but as a church, we're, we're spirit-filled people. So if you didn't know that, we are. We're spirit-filled people. We don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. That is not a scriptural teaching. There's very little scholarship today who would agree with that at all. S- scholars freely confess that that is not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches plainly that prophecy stops when Jesus returns. Because when Jesus returns, we got nothing left to prophesy about. We just drink the new wine. We just celebrate, okay? The scriptures teach that tongues stop when Jesus returns. That the gift of healing stops when Jesus returns because ain't nobody going to be sick anymore. That's the teaching of the New Testament. And so what I'm saying is that God wants to speak to our body prophetically and as he speaks to us prophetically, what we'll do is we'll align ourselves with what God actually wants to do right here and right now. So when God says to Frank Bartleman, I'm going to do something in your city that will shake the entire earth, Bartleman gets to praying, throws himself into prayer, and God fulfills the prophetic word, and Bartleman aligned himself to see it come to pass. And we see all of those things working together. So scripture says that we should not despise prophecy. We don't want to be a house that despises prophecy. Then the scripture says, but test it. So we want to be a house that tests it. So not everything that anybody utters comes to pass. Prophecy, we'll, we, we will give room for the prophetic gift. But ultimately, the things that we try to line ourselves up with are things that we need to submit to our leaders, our pastors, our elders need to have time to pray over it and to hear it and to consider whether this is God or not. So the scriptures say, don't reject prophecy, but don't eat everything like you're dumb. And that's the kind of house we're going to be. But we do need God to speak to us prophetically and allow us to align ourselves for just exactly what it is he wants to do in our hour, in our day. Why has he brought us all to this area in this age and in this time? We are ambassadors of heaven. We're not just school teachers. We're not just police officers. We are those things to the glory of God. But we are ambassadors of heaven, chosen, called, anointed with the power of of the Holy Ghost. What is it that he wants us to accomplish in this hour? We need God to speak. I give you permission to be a person who doesn't despise prophecy, but test it. You don't have to eat everything that comes your way. But you also don't have to be disrespectful. There are times people like pray for me or prophesy to something to me that I'm like, that just does not ring true. They're like, you're going to play NBA. And I'm like, nah, I got about a six inch vertical. Yo, it ain't happening. Um, I promise you that. Um, unless the NBA stands for something else. 
like the New Boy Association. You can't play good, so you're going to play for the New Boy Association. Maybe that. But there's no reason to be disrespectful. There are times where I say, thank you for stepping out. And people may ask, does that resonate with you? And I say, no, it doesn't resonate with me. But that's okay. That's okay. You're learning. And and we all are, right? Like, there ain't... If you think you're in the room and everything you, you're, you're perfect and everything you hear prophesied is perfect, it ain't. I promise you it ain't. And there, it takes humility to allow people to test stuff. It takes humility to say, I really feel like God's speaking this and I'm going to submit it to somebody and let them see if God's speaking it to them too. That's the thing is that we all have the Holy Spirit in our, in our chest here and the Holy Spirit can resonate within us. You also all have brains and some of you got crazy brains, like crazy stuff happens in here and you need to lay off the LSD because things are going on in here that should not be going on. Okay? This ain't the 70s and you ain't Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> so in conclusion, this is just what I wanted to say. I hope you guys kind of catch the gist of what I'm trying to say. I think in this season that we're in, we need to cling to the established prophetic word. The prophetic word of scripture is absolute. It is totally true. It is inerrant. There's no reason to test the prophetic word of scripture. Maybe to try to interpret because it is mysterious at times, but we don't need to test it. It will come to pass. This thing is always true. We need to embrace fully the, the sure prophetic word of God. That there is a day when every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There's a day coming quickly where every knee will bow. But as we hunger, we also have to, with balance and humility, ask God to speak to us concerning what he has for us to do. What does he have for your family to do? One of our, uh, one of our guys, Jake Urban, was um, headed out. He's in, the, he's in the Marines. He was headed out this week, um, being deployed for a couple months. And we, we were praying on Friday night and praying, God, use him. And Jake texts me um, Saturday morning as he got on the plane, and he said, "The mission field starts." Because what he's doing is he's saying, "God, why are you calling me to do this? What, what is it in this that that you want to see your purpose come to pass in?" And I'm your vessel. I'm totally yours. Do anything you want to do through me. And that's the posture we all got to learn to carry. Why do you have me here? What are you trying to accomplish? What people do I bump into every day that you're actually trying to minister to? Speak to us, God. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.